And now abideth faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Would you look in 1 John chapter 4 again? This is our third message on this little series called God's Response to Our Love. Verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. You did not choose to love God any more than you chose to come to God. You came to God because he chose you and you're only able to love God because he first loved you. Now, I've already said this, but let me repeat it. The effect of God loving you is that you will in turn love him. Because if he doesn't first love you, you cannot love him. In verse seven, love is of God. True love, the Bible word for love, agape, is from God, only comes from God, and there's no other way you can have the God kind of love. There may be eros love, erotic sexual love, which is all has to do with pleasure and affections, has nothing to do with how you feel about somebody. There may be filial love, where you're a friend to people you like, but you'll turn on them if things don't go your way. You may love your religion, you say, but it's gonna cost you your reputation. You may not love it so much and leave it, which means you liked it, you liked what you got from it, but when it begins to be costly, you didn't like it that much, so you left it. Jesus said to Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter said, I like you. I can't deny that I like you. I can't say that I love you, no. Because just a few days ago, I denied three times that I even knew who you were. I've done nothing but fail you the last week of my life. And you're asking me if I'm dedicated and committed to you? No. I want to be, but I'm not. And I'm not going to play that game. I like you. I want to be around you. I derive pleasure from being with you. But what you want me to love you with, the kind of love you're loving me with, I don't have that. You know what? Jesus accepted him. He said, feed my sheep. The third time Jesus said to him, do you like me? Do you really derive pleasure from being in my presence? First Corinthians 16 says, if any man like not or love not the Lord, it means it's a word phileo. If any man doesn't like the Lord, let him be accursed. If you can't enjoy him or his presence or you don't want to be around it or hear it, then you're cursed. Love is a marvelous and wonderful thing because when God loves somebody, he commits himself to that person's well-being and their future hopes. That's the only way we have a future. God has to do that. He never leaves you alone. Even if you backslide or even if you fall away for a season, even in those dark moments of a person's life where they're wandering back into the sinful ways of this world or trying to, God didn't leave them alone. He brought them back because he's committed to bringing you into his kingdom, planting you in his courts and blessing you in that way. Now, love is an easy word to use. Uh, there's a lot of misconceptions of what love is. We call love things that we have pleasure in. We love an old car, or we love a place we eat, or we love a song that we sing, or we love the way those clothes fit, or we love to be around certain people. We use that word so easy and so freely. Every wedding has the word love in it several times. He says to her, I love you for better or um, <coughs> uh, for, uh, Worse, that's the word, for better or for worse, which never proves out to be true. I mean, she doesn't love him that much and he doesn't love her that much, but they say that because that's the formal thing to say. Because when worse comes, he's ready to go. He likes the idea of being married to her, but he doesn't love her to the end or, or vice versa. Love is an all-encompassing word in the Bible that describes total commitment from God to you and if you love him, from you to God. And without that, there is no love. There's other words for love that describe what you've got, but what you've got is not love. You may love a certain church, but if that certain church does something you don't like, you leave it because you didn't love it, you liked it. 
you benefited from it. There's a selfish attraction to the way most people's love works. I love what pleases me. I love what I like. I'm not willing to love on somebody else's terms, but I love what I like to love. Love is such an easy word to use, but we use it for a person who attends church all the time or who sings so gloriously and seems to have so much fun. We just say, boy, they love the Lord, don't they? Well, it certainly looks like they do, but that's not the definition of love. You can use that word to say this is what love will eventually do to a person, but you can't say that if a person is very religious that they're loving people. That isn't always true. There's a lot of people who go to church that don't love their wives or their husbands, don't love their kids, they don't pay their bills, got a bad reputation in town, or they lose their temper real easy, fuss and complain or watch porn. They don't love the Lord. They love what pleases them. You love the Lord, you commit yourself to whatever it is that he's pleased with. And you order your steps after what he shows you, just like Jesus did, because he was a pattern. He's the one whose steps that we should walk in. But remember, even though we say we love a whole bunch of things and churches may get together and show much love, I want you to remember that verse we've already used each week in Ezekiel 33. You don't have to turn to this. Ezekiel 33 and verse 31, it says, And they come unto thee as people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goes after their covetousness, their personal gain. I call that prostitute religion because a prostitute is great at pretending, but it's all for personal gain. I like what I get out of the church. I like what people do for me. I like to be noticed and recognized. And I like for people to cater to my feelings. But if you're gonna put the tenets of discipleship before me and tell me that I must live on God's terms, I'm going to some other church because I don't love that. I love what I get personally out of this place, but I'm not willing to sacrifice my life to a system of belief that not very many people sacrifice to or commit to. Love is a big word in the Bible. It's the one, as I said, it's the one supreme word that when it comes from the heart, it changes a life. Listen to what God said about the heart. Remember in Deuteronomy 6, 5, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul and all your might. There's no other way to love God. There's a verse in Deuteronomy 11:13 13, and it says, and it shall come to pass if you shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God, to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. Then he describes the multiple blessings that come, the ones that we complain about not getting. He said, they shall come. But it all depends on if with your heart, not your mind and your feelings, but with your heart, you love the Lord. And then there's a verse in Deuteronomy 30 in verse 6. It says, And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul that you may live. And if he doesn't do that, we cannot love him, nor can we live. Folks, let me tell you something. Everything, everything has to do with God. He is the one supreme being. There is no other. And if there's ever going to be a relationship with him, even the knowledge, the true knowledge of him, or love for him, or any kind of commitment to God with your life, it has to be a response from you to him. He always initiates this. You cannot know God unless God lets you know him. Jeremiah said, canst thou by searching find out God? No, he must reveal himself to you. He must show you his ways and then you must be willing to live those ways. It's a big crisis for a lot of people because he that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him it's sin. But God shows us the way he wants to go because he loves us. See, to love God is to commit yourself to Him. I've said that every meeting so far. To love God is to commit yourself to Him, to His ways, and to His will. 
You search and find out what his word says, what his will is, and love commits itself to living that way, to live on his terms. I'm not trying to be ugly when I say this, but I don't know a lot of people who do. There are more people that go to church than I'll ever know, but I can't say that I know through the years that many people who are willing to live their lives on his terms. Now, I have been frustrated many, many hours of preaching in my life because it seems like people really either aren't listening or don't want to listen, and it shows up 10 years later that they haven't paid attention. And I wonder sometimes, do we really love the Lord? Do we love this word? Can we walk away from it as easy as some people do and say we love the Lord? At your funeral, somebody will say you love the Lord. Your neighbor, because you go to church and you seem to be so religious, they'll say you love the Lord. But really, as we study the subject and look at this, it's a commitment. It is a resignation of my life to give up all that I want to do, what pleases me, and a surrender of my will to him to do what he wants. Doesn't the Bible say we're bought with a price? That we're no longer our own? That the only right choice we can make is to agree with God? Love is the cause of loyalty. Your commitment to God is a reason you're loyal. It's a reason you're faithful. It's the reason you're loving and compassionate because that's what God compels us to do. What good is a marriage without God's love in it? Half of everybody who stare at each other and put rings on each other's fingers and take vows to each other, half of them divorce. Even though they said, I commit myself to you, that's what a marriage is, for better or for worse. And there's always a worse in there somewhere as you discover each other. And some people just don't like the idea that I've got to deal with that. And so they get out of it and leave it. Walk away from it. Their commitment to God meant nothing because they did not love the Lord. There was no care about what God thinks. There was no concern about what does God think about what I'm doing? Am I really showing him that I love him? I can go to church and not be committed to God. I can be a preacher and preach sermons and not be committed to God. I can have a thousand hidden sins in my life and you wouldn't know it unless you were around me a lot. And that's why I don't hang around y'all so much. <laughs> Preaching sermons doesn't mean you love God. Preaching on love doesn't mean you love God. We're all going to be discovered anyway, and we're being discovered. But love is when a man puts his hand to the plow and he refuses to look back because he's committed to God. I'm committed to my wife. I'm committed to my husband. I'm committed to my children. God gave you children gifts from the Lord. Everyone needs help. And the best help they can ever get comes from the ones who brought them into the world. There are thousands of kids today that don't even know who their parents are. Don't know who their daddies are. Nobody's ever cared. You grow up with this rejection complex. You grow up with a chip on your shoulder. They'll do the same thing themselves because it's a spirit. It runs in families. It's a spirit. It's a devil. But every little kid needs somebody to commit themselves to the well-being of that child, to correct that child when they're wrong, or to correct the little girl or little boy when they're wrong, when they talk wrong, do wrong, to teach them manners. You know, manners are about out. Teach them how to say, excuse me, thank you, I'm sorry, yes ma'am, no, to teach them that. To teach them how to eat right at the table instead of just, you know, your hands are for holding a fork. They're not little cups you just shove it in. To teach, to care enough about how this child is growing up to stop sometimes what you're doing and correct them. God does that to you, whom he loves, he chastens. Every son he receives, he corrects us. We mourn and cry and whine and bawl about a lot of things down here. But what we can't see is that God is correcting us so that he will not have to judge us at the end of our life. Amen. It's what he said in 1 Corinthians 11, that we might not be judged along with the rest of the world. The world's going to be judged. 
A sense of condemnation is lodged in this world, in all the inhabitants of this world, except for the ones that have been redeemed or rescued or ransomed out of the world. The ones that God chose to personally, he didn't choose me, he what? He chose you and brought you out of that miry clay and set you before him. And for the rest of your life, God is going to deal with you. He is not going to let you go. For he that began a good work, Philippians 1, 6, he will finish it. If he doesn't do it, you'll never get finished. Oh, it's just a wonderful thing that this is what God does. He keeps us. God is at work in you. You think he's at work in everybody? You think a hoodlum on a street or a terrorist in some alley somewhere, do you really think God is doing a work in their life? No. That's the Adamic nature having its course with no interruptions. For judgment day, that's what they get. Why is he dealing with you? Why do you go through these trials and tribulations and why all the shaking going on? Why? Because God loves you. Well, that don't make sense. It will. Remember, if there's some vile things in your attitude or some things in your life, there's some ways in you that are not correct, God's going to deal with you. He's going to follow you and hound you and you're going to get caught. And you're going to be found out and you're going to feel the sense of shame and you're going to suffer and you're going to be persecuted and all kinds of tribulations and hardships are going to follow you through this life, along with goodness and mercy. And God is going to effect a change in your life for one reason. He has chosen to be your father and he is going to correct you so that when he is done with you, he can say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And if he doesn't do that, we won't make it. All the people he could pick and he picks you. He doesn't pick everybody who goes to church, but the ones he does pick, they know that God is dealing with them. And he deals with those lives and he works on those things. He speaks his word and he says what he says and he's at work in their lives. Now go to John chapter 14 because that's where we ended last time. This is such a, a wonderful subject to talk on. I could say the same thing every week and never get to what I want to say, which is what I usually do. <laughs> say, well, Brother Hamilton, you could have preached that sermon one time. You've taken four messages. I probably have. But allow me to do that, to refresh your memory, not of things you have not heard, but of things you have heard in light of the events of this past week, of what you did and what you said and what you watched and what you thought in the events of this past week. Is there any need for any adjustments in your life spiritually? I say there is. Listen to this, John chapter 14 and verse 15. Hear Jesus, because it's in red letter. If it's in red, Jesus said it. And verse 15, it says, if you love me, here's what you do. You say you love the Lord? Well, do this then. Keep my words. Keep is what we would describe as be faithful to. Find it. Keep it. It becomes what you do. It becomes your way of life. It was his instruction to you. You receive it because you made a commitment to do that. This is what's supposed to happen when you're born again. You turn over your life to God. And from this day on, you begin to walk in newness of life. With Jesus as the example, we are to grow up into him in most things. All things to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ from glory to glory to glory. That's got to be the object of our life, our reason for living. That's why we sing, love lifted me. <laughs> I was sinking deeper than any of you were, and God rescued me. Praise God forevermore. Now, John 14, verse 21. He that has my commandments and keeps them. Now, here is God's response. Number first response. He said, he that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my father. Now, I finished last time by asking you if God loved everybody. 
Remember that? And you all were real quiet because you didn't know if I just spit on the floor or blasphemed or what I did. In one verse of scripture, one, the one you're looking at right there in verse 21, who does it say there loves God? Who does God say loves him? Those who keep his word. Not those that hear it, not those that go to church, not those that preach, not those that study, but those who keep. And what is the response of God to those people? And he will love them. Well, now, if he loves them already anyway, like everybody says, oh, God loves everybody. Well, then everybody keeps the word. You could go into any bar or any dive in Louisville or Shelbyville and any place you go, and there's people studying the Bible. <laughs> Drinking Bud Dumber in there. They're all having Bible studies at the local bar. I'm going to tell you what my Bible says. It says this, if you call yourself a Christian and you say you love God, you evidence it by keeping his word. You become faithful. And when you do that, God said he will love you. I don't think you earn his love, but this is the natural response of a commitment to God in this way. And God is willing, in verse 21, and God is willing to let you experience divine love. Yet you will begin to experience divine love. Now what is that? Turn to 1 John, little John, 1 John 2. And let me show you something back here. There's so much here. There's just so much. You will experience divine love. The first John chapter two and verse five, but whoso keepeth his word. Does your Bible say that? Whoso keepeth his word in him verily or truly is the love of God perfected. And in this way, by loving God, we know that we are in Christ. Okay? See how narrow it's starting to get? When the Bible speaks of fear and trembling, we're walking into that place. Because you have to make a serious, sincere examination of your own life. Not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom. You know that. So we don't want to play games with religion and assume that we're all right because we've been in church for 40 years. You can't take anything for granted. Because there is a definite way that God has given us to measure ourselves. God's plumb line he drops before you is himself. He said, this is the way I want you to live. My son is an example of what I want. He said, in him I am well pleased. And everything that he did is what I want you to do. He did what I told him to do. He said, I came to do my father's will just like I'm asking you to do. He was committed to God more than anybody else. And because God wanted to save people, he had to send a spotless lamb into this world without spot or wrinkle, who was a suitable sacrifice for the sins of man. Jesus was willing not only to come, but to live that way and to die willingly. You couldn't take his life. He gave his life. And God, on the basis of that love for mankind, is willing to save whosoever will come to him by Christ. He's willing. But for so many people, Jesus is just a, a figure of Santa Claus or Easter bunny and a new dress at Easter and uh, the tomb, walking on the water, a picture, you know, a Gentile Jesus. That's all he is. He's just a, a figment of their imagination, an idea of something that is good and they really don't even know who he is. In fact, they really can't relate to him like he wants them to. They can just take man's ideas for granted. Most people believe what the preacher says anyway. They don't read the Bible. So that's all they know about it. But he said clearly, whoever keeps his word in that person truly, the love of God reaches its goal. It's perfected. And by this, we know that we are in him. Now that's one thing that happens. A second thing in verse 23 if a man love me, he will keep my words. And what? Go back to big John chapter 14 now in verse 23. 
If a man love me, he will keep my words. And what's the response? And my father will love him. Well, I've been told he already did anyway. Why do I have to keep his word? He loves me anyway. That isn't what it said. That's not what it said. This is what it said. He said, if a man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Or we will manifest ourselves to him. We will make ourselves apparent to him, as he said, was it verse 21? We will reveal ourselves to him. The word manifest means to make apparent. In other words, God will make known to you who he is, a living revelation of the almighty God to you personally. And this becomes the very basis of a personal relationship with God. It is God who initiates it. He gives you something to do and you do it. And God's response is to begin to show you who he is, to manifest himself to you. And the effect that has on the human heart, because God made it as a dwelling place for God. And the effect your heart has when God begins to show himself to you, we call it the fear of God. It's a reverence. It's an awe. It's a respect. And somehow, somewhere in the spiritual man, the man on the inside, the man of the heart, there is such a, and I can only say this in my words, but you've got to experience it because I don't think I can describe it right. But the new man on the inside, when Jesus comes and releases whatever he does to your heart to let you see who he is, it means more to you than anything else in life. It's the most overwhelming, wonderful thing that can ever happen is to know God. We speak of it with the English language, to know God is you read the Bible and find out what he did. I'm talking about a personal relationship. I'm talking about Jesus Christ. Remember, he stands at the door and knock, and what does he say? If any man will open, I will come in and do what? I will sup with him. I will fellowship with him. I'll come in and I'll change your life. I'll take away the dark and I'll bring the light. I'll take away the dirt and I'll bring the cleansing. I'll take away all the grief and the sadness and the anger and the sorrow and the madness in you, and I'll give, take it all away, and I'll change your heart. Because you see, God says, I'm committed to making you the way I want you. And the only way it'll ever happen is if I come to you. You can't come to me, but I'm going to come down here where you are. I'm going to begin to show you who I am. I'm going to begin to manifest myself to you. And you're going to find yourself drawing back some of those days of your life going, wow. And some of the stuff you used to watch, you won't watch it. Some of the junk you used to wear, you won't wear it. Because there's something inside of you that is a compelling influence about doing something right. And when you make those changes, you're loving God because you're responding to his word. It's how you love. It's the only way you can show God you love him. You can close your eyes and say, I love you, Lord, and I lift my heart. You can do that. And we'll all say, boy, he loves the Lord. Not necessarily. Man that loves the Lord, he lives that way when he's alone. When she's alone and by herself and nobody else in the room or around you and the tube's on. Or the magazine shop. And when you're by yourself, that's when you more than any other time show God who you are and what you are. No more peeking and glancing and no more twisting and all of that because that's changing. Why? Because I know that's not right anymore. I did that because I had pleasure in what people were saying about me and all the looks I got from people. But I know that isn't right because God has to judge that. It's called a lot of things and none of them are good. And I want to live right. This is the change that takes place. I can tell you that for 41 years in various stages and intensities, this has been happening. Until you come to a time in your life, and I'm so glad that at this time, this age of my life, that I'm experiencing peace. I have no fears of tomorrow or health or aging or sickness. No fears. That God who led me out of a vile place 41 years almost ago, will lead me until this journey is over.
He will show me how to get there and he will make sure that I make it there. Would you go back to 1 John again, please? One more time, because you see, for him to manifest himself to you, we read verse five, it was the verses before that, that describe even what knowing him means. You'll find that knowing God and loving God are sometimes in the same breath. Look at verse two. And he is a propitiation or the atoning work for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. His death was sufficient to save anybody in this world who wants to be saved. Verse three, and hereby we do know that we know him if what? Now we're teaching right now. Hereby we know that we know him if we what? Keep his commandments. Now, didn't he also say that if we love him, we will keep his commandments? Did it also also say that if we know him, we'll keep his commandments? Well, then to know God essentially then means to love him because they both do the same thing. Knowledge doesn't always compel people to do. There's a lot of people, he that knoweth to do good and doeth it not. There's a lot of people who know the right things and don't do it. But when love is a part of this package, and it is, when your heart is set on keeping his word and you're loving him the best way you know how by being obedient to him, he will let you know him. This is an influence in your life that most people don't have. It's the arresting influence against sin in your life. It is the thing that says no to wrong. Hereby we do know that we know him, verse 3, if we keep his commandments. Uh-oh, verse 4. Uh-oh, hold on. Grab a hold of somebody. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Let me ask you another question because I love to ask questions. Questions make you think. Are there any liars in the church? Are there? Are you? Let me go on here before I get fired. Okay, verse five. <laughs> but whoso keepeth his word, there it is again, whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love that God gives to him made complete. And hereby we know that we are in him. That's what it says, verses three and four and five. Now verse six says, he that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. I said a while ago, he's the example, isn't he? We should follow in his steps. Everything God asks us to do, he already did it. There was no commitment he did not make to do whatever God wanted him to do. And he is put before us and his example of how we ought to live. And we quit saying, well, nobody can live like Christ. Everybody who loves God can live like Jesus. Who do you think is the work in you making it possible? He didn't leave us alone. There's divine strength on the inside of us. Second Peter 1 talks about the divine nature, which enables us to overcome we have no excuses. The question is, will we set ourselves down at some point in these days that we're looking at right now and ask ourselves, do I love the Lord? I don't mean do I go to church and read my Bible and all. That isn't what I'm talking about. I'm talking about do you love the Lord? Do you want to live on his terms? Are you sincerely committed with your life to living the way he is showing us in the word to live? Or are you using the excuse, it's too hard, I can't, I'm too young, too old, too far, too slow, too hot, too cold. Are you making excuses? Every church I've ever been in gave you the freedom to make excuses. Well, nobody's perfect. Well, nobody. He's talking about loving him. I have seen a lot of people in my life. I've talked in a lot of churches in a lot of different countries, been a lot of places. And I have never found a subject that even as much as I love the message of faith, I've never found a subject that's more important than this one. Because if you don't love God, you can have faith to move mountains. You can raise the dead. 
But if it's not love that's behind your life, it does you no good. And when he talks about you knowing God in verse 3, why did he say in Matthew 7 to those disciples, why did he say, I never knew you? But Lord, whoa, whoa, time out, time out, time out. Lord, 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 Lord. Look at here. I had miracle campaigns. I mean, we had tent meetings and we had big me and people got healed. Well, Lord, I was a major prophet. I prophesied to a lot of people. Lord, I worked miracles. I mean, cast out demons. You know what Jesus said to him? I never knew you because you can do all of that and not be committed to the Lord. You can be committed to the kind of money you're getting from all them offerings. And I know something about that because I've been with some of those people. I know what they talk about. It's not about helping hurting people so much. It's just what hurting people can give you. And, and some of them really get healed and inspires all the rest of them to keep coming. Folks, there's nothing that supersedes your personal commitment as a human being. If God has invited you, you can't choose him. He has to choose you. Of turning your life squarely to him. And no matter what people say about you, no matter what consequences are, I've taken a serious moment and say, I commit myself to you. This day, and I will never look back in Jesus' name. And then prove it. And the rest of your life, don't do what's wrong. Avoid things that are sinful. Don't do anything that makes other people sin, like wear them ignorant clothes that some girls wear because you like the way you look. It's enticing. And you know it, and we know it. You've got to desire what God wants more than what the world wants. If you love the world, the love of God is not in you. Remember that in 1 John 2? If you love the world, God's love is not in you. The pride of life, being cocky and arrogant and famous and everybody looking up to you, buying your records and watching you play ball, that's the world. The love of God is in none of it. Those people don't love the Lord. And people that love that don't love the Lord. You say, well, you're awful narrow this morning. I am narrow. I got to live by what I'm telling you just as you do. But he said, if you love God, you will keep his words. You know what he said in verse 23? If you love him, you will keep his words. And he said, the Father and I will come to you. Come to you, God Almighty. The Creator comes to you in your heart, living in your life. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, no matter what men may say, something like that. I see his hand of mercy. I feel his voice of cheer. And every time I need him, he's always near. He's not standing out here. He's in here. He's at work in me, not outside of me. He's not yanking on me. He's inside pulling the levers. I don't deserve this. And none of you do too. Here's the title of the message. The response of God to genuine true love is to effect in you a relationship with God that will supersede anything else you'll ever know or need in this life. When you find that wonderful moment with God, you have found all that you need to find. He'll be there. Because if you love him, you'll keep his words. Now, second response is in 1 John 3. You're already back there. So let's look in 1 John 3 and verse 22. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. Now, who believes that? Not very many. Maybe somebody. But nevertheless, it says it anyway. And whatever we ask, we receive of him because. Now, let me ask you a question. Why do we receive what we ask for? Is there not a reason? Doesn't because give us a reason? Because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, verse 23, that we would believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now, he that keepeth his commandment dwelleth in him and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he has given us. 
How do you know you have a relationship with God? Well, it's all because of how you love. You love your neighbor as yourself or you look down on other people. It all depends on your commitment to Jesus. But the response here in 1 John 3, 22, the response is answered prayer. There's a lot of prayers that we would like to get answered. There's a lot of needs that we have prayed about that we want God to answer. And just because the manifestation of your prayer hasn't occurred right away doesn't mean that God has said no. You have to wait a while. Sometimes you may have to wait a while because there's a thing that God often does while you're waiting. It takes the shine off of what you wanted so bad and it enhances that relationship that he wants you to have with him. It was so deep in Paul's life, he said, there's one thing in life that I want more than anything else. You know what it was? To know God. I want to know him. I want to be drawn into his fellowship. Even with the sufferings and the confusion and all this stuff, I want to know him personally like that. I want to know him as my friend and as the one who follows me and keeps me. But he said, if you love and you keep his commandments and you do what pleases him, that's what Jesus said in John 8, 29, I think. Jesus said, always do those things which pleases my father. But that's what he's asked us to do. A third thing, you go to Psalm 91, you'll love this one too. Psalm 91. There are several things that God responds to when you love him. Let's begin with verse one and verse two. And we've been talking about abiding and dwelling and knowing and relating and loving. All of these things will go together in this whole package. But he said, verse one, he that dwelleth. The word dwelleth means, the Hebrew word means to stop. It's a picture word. It's a man who's on a journey going somewhere and he gets to a place, by implication, he stays permanently. It's a lifestyle in communion with the Lord. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide, and that means to dwell. It's a peaceful dwelling. Shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Now let me say this in all honesty because you can understand this. It's not easy to do this. It's not easy to abide in the Lord. It's not easy to just take his cross upon you and do what he said. You and I both know that if we live the way Christ lived and we go back into the same world we work in every week around the people we've come to know who are our friends or companions and we begin to make this new journey and make this new adjustment to live the way we're supposed to, they're going to gnash their teeth at you. People are going to think you're strange or you're weird. Y'all remember the time, for example, Peter had been fishing all night long and hadn't caught any fish. It's in Luke chapter 5. And Peter was sitting on the shore that morning. The Bible said he was mending his nets. They'd been dragging over rocks and torn the nets. So he was sitting there with other fishermen. He was putting his nets back together for the next fishing foray. And Jesus came up to him that morning. And he said, cast your nets out there for a catch. And Peter, who's a fisherman by trade, as you would have probably done, there's no fish out there. We fished all night long. We've been all over this area out here. We've been way out there. We've been everywhere we know as fishermen by trade and by experience where the fish are. Everywhere we've been, we've caught no fish. Now, you want me to just drop my net out here? Jesus says, yes, drop your net out there for a catch. Are you willing to do things that are unreasonable? Things that your mind tells you are crazy? They don't make any sense. That's unreasonable. And yet Jesus said, do that. Remember what Peter said? You, you may not. Let me tell you. He said, Lord, we have toiled all night and we've caught nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, we will do it. He dropped his nets out there and he couldn't hardly get the net back to shore because of all the large fish that was in that net. 
And then he realized who Jesus was. Lord, he's depart me. I'm a sinful man. Sometimes the things that God asks us to do in this drawing near and relating and walking with him are going to get you in trouble. You clean up your life and people who have been around you all your dirty life, they don't want you cleaned up. If you've got a bunch of foul-mouthed friends, I know what that's like too. If you've got a bunch of foul-mouthed friends and you suddenly get around them and you're not foul-mouthed anymore and you don't tell jokes, laugh at jokes and, and talk about the girls and all the things like you used to, your friends say, what's wrong with you? Because they find out real quick that you're not responding to the system or the culture. Come on, man, you ain't like us. And then you say, I've made a decision to change. I don't do that anymore. Now you think they want to, oh man, that's good. We're so glad. Give our brother a hand. You think they do that? They will either persecute you or hurt you or throw you out. You got to get away from them people. They're not your friends. They don't love you. They don't even care about you. You misbehave and they'll kill you. And people grow up in that environment and they really are confused and they really are disoriented and they really can't understand how Jesus could be so good. They've never seen any good. But you've got to pay the price. I know what they say when I was a school teacher and a basketball coach. I know what happens when you get saved. I know what the other teachers, some of the other teachers used to say to me as I'd come in the teacher's lounge in the morning. I know what they said. Sometimes they quit talking. But I was, wasn't saved enough, long enough yet to be humble about it. But I know what they say because you're different. You don't go to the track anymore. You don't race anymore. You're not talking about stuff you shouldn't talk about anymore. You're not nasty and vulgar anymore. The girls change their clothes. They don't look the way they used to look anymore. And other girls that look like that look at you and they know you're different and they inherently know you're right. Why are you doing this? You're making us look bad. We don't want you with us anymore. And they start calling you names. Most people can't pay that price. Remember the man, the sower and the seed, when he was persecuted because of the word, he had to leave? Well, this abiding and dwelling thing here we're talking about is conditioned by the fact that you keep your hands on that plow and that you commit yourself to the Lord. It's all about your love for him. Now, notice in verse 3, surely he shall deliver thee. You see deliver there once. And then if you go down to verse 14 through 16, which is God's response. The word deliver is used two more times. They're not the same word, but they're not that greatly different either. In verse 14, I will... Deliver him is another way in the Old Testament of God saying, I will provide a way of escape. You will not be snared by the fowler because I will provide a way of escape. Verse 3 says, I will deliver you from traps that are laid for you. Everybody's going to come at you. They're going to come at you. Or verse 15, he said, he will remove destruction or he will be like a high tower. He will fortify you and keep you. He's not going to get you out of the heat. He's not going to take you out of the trouble. He's just going to take care of you. It doesn't look like it sometimes, but he is. Now, why does he do this? We're talking about response to love, verse 14. Psalm 91, verse 14. Because he has set his love upon me. Because he has set his love upon me, God says, and he's quoting us, because he has set his love upon me. That's what we do. We commit ourselves to him to live his way and we struggle. Therefore will I deliver him. That's one I will. A second I will is that I will set him on high. That has to do with exaltation and honor. God will make a difference with you. You will be blessed when maybe others aren't. He makes a difference with you. And people will know it. They won't know what to do about it, but they will know it. He said, I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. Verse 15, he shall call upon me. There's our first John 3, 22, and I will answer him. Wouldn't it be nice to know that when you pray, God responds? All because you love him. I will deliver him again. And he says, I will honor him. 
The word honor here means to be heavy. You say, how do you get honor out of heavy? Well, again, it's a word of pictures. The hand of the Lord was heavy upon you. Nobody can take it off of you. God honors you because the hand of the Lord is with you and upon you. And God says, I will honor him. And he says, I will again. In verse 16, he said, with long life will I satisfy him. Is long life important? I heard a young man give a testimony once. It was one of these news shows. And he said he hoped he could live to be 30. Then my God in heaven, what a tragic unnecessary life. What a terrible life to die in your youth like that. Long life. What is long life? Not Psalm 90, about three score and 10. There is no single word that describes long life as to how many years it is, but it's the word satisfy means it will be full. There will be nothing you could add to it. Wouldn't you like to live a peaceful, joyful life with God that was so full of his presence and his assistance and his accommodations that everything in your life was exactly what you wanted? Because he puts these desires in your heart, he gives you the desires of your heart so that you don't covet anything else. You don't break the 10th commandment, you won't covet. Because he will give you the desires of your heart and give you the years to enjoy it. Now, I'm not old yet. I'm not old yet. So don't be, buy me a rocking chair at the Cracker Barrel. I don't need one yet. I got one anyway. Somebody gave me one. What I'm saying is that God said, with long life, he will satisfy me. So I don't need life insurance. Insurance company can't make me live long. All they can do is give you what they said they would if you sue them. You can't buy anything to make you live longer. Nobody can guarantee you a tomorrow. Nobody. The breath that man breathes is in the hand of God. And when you quit breathing, it goes back to its author. And he could pull the curtain, young singer, Jackson, it could happen just like that in the midst of opportunity. But what about a life that's not full of struggle and consternation, just peace and joy? You're able to love people because you can see that there's a human soul in every person. As vile as some people may be, as ugly as they act, they got a soul. And you were as bad as they were when God saved you. So don't look so bad on some of these people for you were as bad as they were. And you learn to be assistance to people. If they want you to help them, you're there. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you want others to do to you. You want to be spoken to, speak to others. You want people to love you, love others. You want people to like you, like others. You want people to help you, help others. Show God what you want in life. Put some money in his bank. Put something in his bank, on, in your account. You want to be liked, loved, helped. You want at peace, be peaceful. You want his blessing on your life, read what brings them. Commit yourself to it. It's yours to have. It really is, it's yours to have. Not only will God satisfy you with a long life, but what's the end of it say in the 16th verse? He will show you his salvation. I will show you my salvation. You know what all that involves? Well, I have my trusty printout. And my trusty printout on my computer from two sources, it says this about the word Salvation. God said, I will show him my, it's not your salvation. It's his saving ways. You can't save yourself. So it's God who does the saving. Well, the Hebrew means deliverance, help, and victory, prosperity. 
more than enough. The primary meaning is to rescue from distress or danger, one's welfare and safety, being rescued from the punishment due for sin. That's what he'll do for you. That's his salvation. The Hebrew and the Greek word have the ideas of healing and soundness. Salvation is the great inclusive word of the gospel, gathering unto itself all the redemptive acts and processes such as justification and redemption and grace and propitiation, imputation, forgiveness, sanctification, glorification, and salvation is in three tenses. He has saved you from your past sins. He is currently saving you from the power and the habits of sin. And one day he will ultimately call you up and your body will be a new body. It's an ongoing process. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And the church has treated this like trash. Too many people go to church with no real interest in living any differently than they live now because they're told you don't have to do anything to go to heaven. And it is true that you could not do anything to qualify. There's nothing you could do to merit the grace of God. But once it is merited, God holds you accountable for the life you live. Otherwise, he would not say, I never knew you. But whom he loves, he's committed to. He's going to save them. And one more. And he's going to save them because they did something. James chapter 1. Go to the back of your Bible and we're just about done now. Don't say amen. James 1 and verse 12. Blessed is the man. I want to be blessed. Y'all want to be blessed? How about you folks out in video, tape, disc, whatever you call that world out there? You want to be blessed? Well, listen to this. Blessed is the man that endureth temptations. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those that join Brother Hamilton's church. Thank God. He said, Blessed is a man that endureth the testings of this life, the trials that he will face. This is how God is going to identify you and show you what your weaknesses are and your problems are. Circumstances are divinely arranged and you walk into them and they're exposing circumstances. For when he is tried, the word also means approved, found right, found to be good. He shall receive the crown of life. Now let me ask you something. Who will receive the crown of life? In this one verse. Those that are tested and proven. Okay? If you are tested and you quit, you are never proven, right? Which means you did not love the Lord enough to stay with it. See, it's gotten quiet again. Let me read it. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those that love him. Then we could say this. God's response to true love is that he will not only cause you to endure, and you will endure all the testings and trials you go through, but he will give you the crown of life. A crown. What's a crown? A crown is an identifying thing, isn't it? Are we going to reign and rule with him? As kings and priests? Both kings and priests wore hats, but kings wore crowns. Who puts the crown on your head? He does. Listen to this verse. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. That's 2 Timothy 4, 8. Not everybody does. Well, what if you're in a country where you're going to die for your convictions? Well, listen to this one. Fear none of those things which you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil hath cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Amen. The crown of life sounds to me like it's something that enables you, qualifies you to be seated with Christ in eternity. Amen. And when the chief shepherd shall appear... 
you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away, Peter said, 1 Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory. A crown of glory that fadeth not away. Who shall receive it? He said, you. My question is, who is you? Who is you? Well, you mean, who am I? No, who is you? Who is you in this verse? You shall receive a crown of glory. Who? Those that overcome. Get this quit attitude out of your mind. Get this I can't out of your mind. God didn't save you and put all of the resources of heaven behind you for you to say I can't. That's not enough. Won't you just commit yourself no matter what. Like a lady in a marriage. She took a vow and said, I will. And after a little while of marriage, he said, I'm tired of you. I want something new. And he left her and he went. And she said, I made a commitment to God. I will not break it. I love God more than I love that man. God told me to do this. I'm going to do it. I read it in the word. You submit yourself to your own husband. He is my husband, the husband of my youth. And I'm going to stay with him. He's gone. If he stays gone, I'm not going to do the same thing. I'm going to keep myself clean before God. If I have to stay like this the rest of my life and not have all the hugs and kisses, in there, I'm going to do it. I've got to figure all this out before I go into marriage and pray about this before I marry anybody. Is this the will of God? Because you're going to look at that face the rest of your life or you're going to commit yourself to. All you young people, don't ever marry. Don't marry. Don't marry Charlotte. <laughs> now it works out if you do it right. If you do it right, it works out. Well, who do you love this morning? You love Jesus? Peter couldn't say he did. Can you? Are you committed? Are you passing your trials? Are you living your life the way he wants to? Is there evidence of his presence? Amen. Bow your head with me. Father, in the name of Jesus, of all the things that we've asked for in our lives, teach us your way in such a way that we respond to you the way you want us to. May it always be an act of love. May the faith we have for the things you promise May our faith be released because we want to please you and receive from you what you gave us. May it operate in love. There are before me this morning, Lord, many needy people. Some hearts are crying. Some are searching. Some are not sure and some are. You're leading us as a group. And in this group, we each have personal relationships with you. And I pray, I pray that none of us will be left out of all the work it takes to bring us into your kingdom. Do your work in us, O oh God. We ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Would you stand to your feet? I am crucified to Christ, nevertheless I live my life, but Christ liveth in me. In the life that I now live, I live by faith of the Son of God, who loved me and He gave Himself for me. He loved me and He gave Himself for me. Yes, He did. He loved me.
God is good, isn't he? Amen. 